Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. What is the um, what is the best video game of all time? Your calls, your text messages. Oh my God, Bubble Bobble was the best game ever. Heavy on the earth. Oh, I l- loved Bubble Bobble. I had a, there was a guy named Kirk who I went to school with, and he went to the bank and he got out rolls of quarters, and then started at lunchtime and didn't come back to school. He skipped school. I just pumped like seventy five dollars of quarters to be able to finish Bubble Bobble one day. Um, the ar- arcade across the street from the across the street from the junior high school it was a popular place. Texture says Pong was incredible. If you captured the ball in the corner, wow, that was a big deal. But the paddle, man, you had to roll the paddle and try to pinch the ball in the corner so you can get control of the ball. That's a good point. It's a very good point, in fact. All right, we'll get your calls, your texts about the best video games of all time. That's a good one. Uh, let's get ourselves moving, though, as we normally do with uh, Are You Okay? Can we do an Are You Okay? Yeah, let's uh, let's hit it. I want to see if Chris was done with his popcorn there. Uh, are you okay? Are you okay with a disappearing snake? Uh, that sounds like a magic trick. Um, <laughs> w- w- yeah, there's so many questions. Like, how did the snake disappear? Where did it go? Does it just do it on its own, or was it okay? Taken? I can update. I can update this then and say, "Are you okay with a dis?" We can do that. We got to do the bed. I feel like you know to make it legit. Are you okay with a disappearing snake again? Oh, he's got a history of disappearing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did a record. <laughs> All right. Yes or no? Are you worried about it? Um, I'd be worried if it like disappeared and showed up, say if I was driving and it all of a sudden was around my leg. That that would, enough. I would not be okay with that. Sir Christopher? Um, I would be okay with it because if there's a snake and it disappears, then that's a good thing. One less snake. One less snake. Bye-bye. I, I'm saying go snake, go. Be free, young man. Don't let the man hold you down. Set yourself free. A 1.4-meter yeah. ball python has slithered away from its Victoria owner for a second time this summer. Same snake as a few weeks ago when we talked about this. The first disappearance lasted longer than a month. This is Brad McLeod. If you have a fear of snakes, beware. A four-and-a-half-foot python is slithering somewhere in the Saanich neighborhood of Marigold. 2020 just keeps on giving. <laughs> and re-giving. This is the exact snake that was reported missing earlier in the month to Victoria City Police. The first time the python was missing for more than a month before being reported to police on August 4th. It escaped near the Galloping Goose Trail and Bay Street, but was found August 12th in Fairfield, nearly four kilometers away. A woman there was shocked to find it in her recycle bin. Ball pythons are not venomous, and it is legal to own them. After police found the snake, it was deemed healthy by a vet. Victoria Animal Control returned it to its owner with a warning and a bill for about $25 for impound and boarding fees. Though animal control says if it happened again in the city, 
the owner would face a $125 ticket for having a snake unlawfully in public. But it did happen again, though in neighboring Saanich. Snake, it appears, has escaped from a backpack. John Lenahan has been making calls and knocking on doors in Marigold. Homeless fella I know is, he, um, I guess he crashed out in some hedges down the road here the other night and a snake got back out again, so. He says the snake is gentle, but. If I find it, it's not going back to its owner. This isn't a first for Saanich. In 2002, a massive boa on a lawn, or how about a ball python found on a toilet? In the most recent case, Saanich police say they will take into account this has happened twice. And we'll liaise with experts about, you know, is carrying the snake around in your backpack appropriate? It's certainly going to look into that and whether the pet should be returned to this individual. Brad McLeod, Global News, Saanich. Sandwich. <laughs> well done, Brad McLeod. That was very slick. Um, we could do the are you okay with are you okay with a ball python in your backpack as well? I'm not well, sure I'm is, okay with that. This is the third time. So it was twice in Victoria, and there was one earlier this year in Manitoba as well. And mm. on top of the emus and the kangaroos that are running around the states, there are just pits everywhere. Yeah. What's going on? Well, apparently there's some sort of... No one's getting along here. The pets want out, man. Yeah, Set them clearly. Free. Clearly. All right. The pythons, anyway. Um, the pythons want out. Yeah. Well, the snakes do. That's weird. I don't get the snake as a pet thing. I mean, I get they're amazing, but I don't get them as a pet. I get pets as being something that's, you know, cute or snuggly or like, uh, hey, Chris, thanks for coming over. Do you want, do you want to meet my kitten or my puppy or... You know, I'm a bird. I don't get, hey, here's my snake. It's in this glass jar that you can't even really touch him or hold him because that's weird. I get it. Because if someone was like, hey, Chris, you want to touch my bird? I'd be like, oh, no, gross. But if someone was like, hey, you want to like see my snake? I'd be like, cool, yeah. <laughs> I wonder uh, if, I went, if I went over to Jake the Snake Roberts's house, uh, <laughs> former WWF wrestler, um, I wonder how many snakes he'd have in his house. How That's many do you think? How many do you really think that he has in his house? At least t- 10. Is that wishful thinking, or are you still thinking that he actually won and lost those matches? I would Jake hope. Well, that's a whole other discussion. But, um, yeah, I, I, I hope at least 10, wishful thinking. It's probably actually five, but, yeah. Uh, what just happened in the background was was guy from New Zealand searches wrestling guy on Google to find out what he looks like. I don't know if you heard that typing, but it was loud. <laughs> it was furious. How many snakes in Jake the Snake Robertson's house? I'll get there eventually. All right, we'll get there. The best video game of all time, Galaga. And then the next text says Galaga. It kept getting harder and harder as you went. Arcade games. Defender, Defender Stargate, Robotron. 1942. That was amazing. 1942. There was a game called Outrun that was also amazing. Another texture says Pac-Man and Centipede. Both amazing. I used to have one of those mini Pac-Man ones, like the desktop video games, where you could play two people, but the controller was like this big. That was fun. Um, do you realize that I was joking about 70s Pong? Okay. I would like to go backwards to that text. It says, Pong was incredible. You captured the ball in the corner. Wow. So we, we've been through this on text before, right? Like, you know that no one can see your face. 
you know that no one can hear your tone. When you send a text and say Pong was incredible, it gets read as Pong was incredible. Just say it. So Pong was incredible. So Asteroids in 1979 was the best. Yeah, I'm old. LOL. Atari. Hmm. Tetris. You guys don't know any of these, do you? This is beyond your age. I know Tetris. Come on. Brick down. Um, so many of them here. I know Galaga as well. <laughs> Stand-up arcade games were cool. Always enjoyed the good old pinball machines. Best video game in television, Dungeons & Dragons, circa 1980. And Lara says, a repeat offender is problematic and pythons do bite and constrict. Any snake spends 24-7 looking for escape opportunities. So how many snakes does Jake the Snake have in his house? Um, well, Jake the Snake Roberts is scared of snakes. How about that? <laughs> he says, um, I'm terrified when it comes to those slithery things. He said he came up with the idea of being Jake the Snake uh, while smoking a lot of pot and drinking a lot of beer. He says, that's what happens when you indulge. You get an idea that might not be the best thought in your mind. I did it, and I was stuck with the name. Um, he also goes on to talk about Andre the Giant, who was also scared of snakes. Apparently, he goes, no, he wasn't. Andre wasn't scared of anything. I love Andre the Giant. That's why I'm reading this. Andre could do anything he wanted to do. He would knock me on my back, stand on my hair, grab my arms, and rip my hair out, and he thought it was funny. Andre was a monster. <laughs> <laughs> So, That's Matt, Jake, Jake the Snake is afraid of snakes. Does that break your heart? Does that shatter anything for you? No, that it. when you really think about it, it makes a whole lot of sense, especially the way he uh, described how he came up with the idea. Mm. It's uh, very illuminating. It is very illuminating, weed. isn't it? Oh, it's so good. All right, 877-399-9898. Let's go to Toronto and Angelo. Angelo, what was the best video game of all time? I was, I was so addicted to Galaga. I'm glad you guys are talking about this because I can't I can't believe how much part time job money I poured away into video games. Right? Do you have the you can get the Nintendo Classic, um and I believe it's on there. Um you know well, when you used to be able to get the second you used to be able to get the second spaceship and shoot two bullets at a time? Yes. Yeah, you could double up the spaceships and then you could well, you became bigger so they could take you out a lot easier, but you could take you could you could you could uh, destroy a whole bunch of stuff and uh, for a, for a period of time, but I wanted to mention that there was a glitch, the original Galaga that would let you stay on the game to a million, and uh, you know for three four hours until your legs were tired and you had to go home. Then <laughs> uh, <laughs> what happens is when you get to the second stage, the blue bees as we called them we called them bees. Alien bees. Remember that. Um, you, you leave the last two bees on the right-hand side just before the first challenge stage. And uh, they would fire away at you as they keep coming down and circulating. And uh, eventually, after about 15 minutes, they would stop firing bullets. And that was your cue uh, that there would be no more bullets coming from the bees for the rest of the game. Huh. They ran out of bullets. They ran out of bullets. Somehow, I don't know who figured this out, and I don't know where I learned it, but, you know, you would have a crowd around you when you're hitting 997,000, 
and, you know, breaking all records on the game. And you basically just found a glitch in the program that would stop all the bullets just by manipulating those last two beans on the second stage. So good, Angelo. Know. Thanks so much for the phone call, bud. We've got to let that go. I love that, and I'm going to try it on my Nintendo and see if it still works. Let's go to Eric in Fort Saskatchewan. Quickly, Eric, we've uh, pressed for time here. What's your thought? Well, okay. I don't always press for time, but uh, basically, um, with all the craziness that's going on, I'm kind of looking for something more simpler, and I think the best game of all time, because it was my first in the early 80s, Nintendo Vision B-52 Bomber. Oh, because absolutely. It, actually ha- it had, and it, w- it was crazy because it was like, you pressed a button to go bomb and went, bombs away. <laughs> we <were laughs> so like, good. Oh, my I God. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Mark Nelson is my guest. And... Mark, here we are. Our conversation from last week, we got into Biosphere 2. We got into Spaceship Earth, the documentary on it. And um, and one of the things that we were left at the end of the conversation was what was the real experience like? And um, there was some pieces of the puzzle that I did not put myself in front of on purpose because I wanted our questions to be organic. And I think I think we got that. Um, I'm really grateful for the conversation yesterday, or last week, excuse me. And then I, then I watched the documentary. I watched it afterwards. And I'm glad I did that because I'm not biased by the documentary. I'm, I'm almost more biased by Mark because we had the conversation first. That's kind of the way your brain works, right? Once your brain has a reason um, to connect to something, it connects to something. And because I connected to Mark first, um, Biosphere uh, 2 comes second. So thanks for coming back on and being with me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, my pleasure. So we talked about the biosphere. We talked about the lead up to the biosphere, and we sort of were left with the, the the human existential part of this. And I find it really appropriate as people are in COVID, isolated, facing new challenges in their minds that they've never had to face before. That this conversation couldn't be more timely. Did you have you found that that some of the things you've gone through on this journey? couldn't be more timely than they have been in the last six months? Uh, I think it's more timely and COVID's only part of the story. Oh, interesting. I, I think that the main thing is, and it's really hard, you know, if you weren't a mature adult or even a, you know, precocious teenager in the early 90s to realize how different the mindset of people is, you know, between then and now. And, and if we had to do bias for two again, which I love, I would love to. Let's do bias for three, four, and five, in, including one in Calgary. Why not? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Um, well, I was, since you just said that, um, I will anyway, ask. If, if I'm sorry, Shane. Yeah, I didn't finish that sentence. Oh, if, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to bias interrupt. for two now because people are so much more aware that there is such a disconnect between you know, human activity and technology in the biosphere, Mm. they would totally get why Biosphere 2 is built. And Biosphere 2, you know, violated all kinds of scientific taboos. You don't put human subjects into an experiment because then they will lose their objectivity. We don't want to study how humans, technology, and a natural world uh, interact because that's outside the strict boundaries of 
disciplines as the universities define them. Hmm. That's all such nonsense. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, yeah, well, it's the storyline that that's been given, right? So, one quick question about the biosphere thing: If you had a chance to do it again, would you do it with so many ecosystems inside it? Because to me, that seemed incredibly difficult to have the living ocean, the rainforest, the desert, the farming, the so many different ecosystems trying to be managed at once in one place. Would you do it again where you just tried to create one more isolated rainforest or ocean and isolate them separately this time? Or would you go back and do it on the larger scale? Well, you know, I, I think challenge brings out uh, a lot of potentiality. You know, so sure. I mean, if, if we were strictly looking at space deployment, then we would have had, you know, like maybe 80% of the system would have been agricultural crops. And maybe we'd have a few trees in there for enjoyment. Uh, no, Bi Biosphere 2, you know, it, it was pretty challenging, you know, because we wanted to demonstrate to people that, first off, you don't understand our biosphere. And I think, you know, the assault on our wilderness biomes is because we think they're superfluous. Mm -hmm. Oh, it doesn't really matter if we have an Amazon, if we have wetlands, you know, if 50% of the mangroves have disappeared in our lifetime, you know, that's just ornaments. So, you know, Biosphere 2 is a pretty radical statement that if we want to study biospheres and if we're going to live in space, I don't want to live in a hydroponic system looking at a lot of technology and a few wheat plants and potato plants and lettuce plants. You know, that's not, <laughs> you know, humans, we have evolved, you know, we're, we're very we're very attuned to the natural world and to put us in an environment that isn't like that aside from temporarily, and clearly we're going to evolve in space. You know, it, that's a shock to the human organism. It is a great example of that. My biggest takeaway from biosphere two was because I'm a words guy and I always break it down into, you know, what is the word to me? It was fragile. You know, how fragile is everything? Because when things went sideways in the biosphere, they went sideways quickly. And um, that whole, you know, the oxygen, the bugs, the everything else that's in the storyline, those things change very quickly. And so when we look at, when you speak about preservation and responsible living as human beings on this planet, not understanding or respecting ecosystems, the word that comes to mind is fragile. If you had to pick a word that you took away from that, Mark, what would that word be? Well, you know, I, I agree and I disagree with you because actually um, almost all of the biomes, you know, the rainforest, the savanna, the fog desert, the Everglades marsh, the living coral reef in the ocean, all of those systems actually performed really well outside of their usual environmental conditions. Interesting. But but I do agree that, and I think it's it's actually really you know, really useful for people to um, do the precautionary principle. You know, since our, since our biosphere has evolved over nearly 4 billion years, and it's gone through, you know, there, there was 2 billion years when there wasn't oxygen in the atmosphere. It's only, you know, 500 million years ago that higher plants and animals evolved. You know, to assume that the earth is robust and can withstand anything that we throw at it, 
that's how we humans collectively are acting right now. So I, I, I'll second the fragility because that is a really dangerous, dangerous way of thinking. Yeah. And you're right, though. The, the ability to adapt and grow, I think you proved that just with the evolution that you're talking about. So, you know, I hear you. I hear what you're saying um, with that one, too. Okay. So Life Under Glass, the second edition is your book. You speak about uh, the, the living underneath the, the, the biosphere. And I would like to acknowledge, first of all, so the, the storyline before the biosphere of some of the people in your community, uh, your chosen family that's in your life, these people are still in your life today. This is, I learned this part after our last conversation. When I looked up the Synergia Ranch uh, and, and where you're living today, uh, where you were living before you guys uh, headed out to take on the world, the, um, I was surprised to see that so many people are still you know, kicking around. So when we talk about life under glass and the things that you went through, it is worth noting that quite a few of these people are still in your life. And that's that's pretty magical. I really wanted to acknowledge that. You're a pretty lucky person there, Mark. You know, we have a French friend, and I don't know I can do a proper French accent. But her perennial question is, what is the glue that holds all of this together? <laughs> it sounds a little more German to me, but yeah, I get it. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm not really doing the French thing. Uh, but anyway... Yeah, but, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. And by the way, I, I just have to say that this magnificent new edition of Life Under Glass, Crucial Lessons in Planetary Stewardship from Two Years in Biosphere 2, I collaborated with two of my co-authors who are biospherians, Abigail Alling, our marine biologist, and Sally Silverstone, who was overall in charge of our food system and was our unflappable captain. And they've gone their own way, you know, after working for many years with our projects and with Ecotechnics. But, you know, it is wonderful that we're still collaborating and we have, you know, we, you know we've shared so many essential moments. You know, and I, I think that's one of the, the sadness. I've lived in community because of the projects that we've undertaken for so many years. And I find it really difficult to empathize with people you know, who, you know, they're doing, they're doing a job, a day job, they have their weekends, they have their family, but there isn't that continuity. And I think the glue that I would say is that we all agreed that we would try to live, you know, properly balanced human lives and push the envelope, you know, we'll do theater, ecology, and enterprise. We'll do them simultaneously, concurrently, and choose not the easy path, but the, but the I guess the Robert Frost, the path least traveled. Yeah. You know, for, for many years we said, you know, it, we shouldn't make an ecotechnic project something that is easily done. And if we didn't do it, conventional economics would throw up some people to do it. What, what needs to be done, and this, you know, makes my life and my, my colleagues' life so much more interesting, let's do stuff can we say shit on Canadian radio? Well, we can now. <laughs> it's no problem. We don't have this. a five second. You we know, do have a delay, and so the local markets will take that out if they want to. You know, it's no problem at this time let's of night. Do, let's do sticky stuff that that you know can't be done. That's yeah. the challenge. Let's do. Let's go into areas where everyone's thrown up their their hands, and conventional economics and approaches don't work. 
Well, and this is where the COVID part comes back to me, Mark, is because the conversation right now is how do we restart economies in Canada? For example, there was just an announcement yesterday saying we need to restart green, but we need to restart and it's got to be uh, helpful for everybody. And that was from the government. And so, of course, political stripe aside, that's really the balance that needs to be found everywhere. And here you guys have been working on it for so incredibly long. Um you know, and, and you're still together. So that says something, that says something as well. So as we dig into this, Mark, um, one of the headlines that brought me to our introduction and, and conversation was going mad, going mad inside Biosphere 2. Um, so help me understand, you know, did you or did the people in that bubble, it was hard and we'll get into the hard, but you know, at times, did you go mad? <laughs> Well, you know, people, some people felt depressed. Three of the crew I learned actually after the two years were doing private therapy sessions, you know, via phone. Uh, you have to remember there was no internet. But, uh, and rumors were rife that we were totally, you know, gone bonkers. Is bonkers a Canadian expression? Yep, it is. Makes sense. Yeah. Bonkers in the bush. Uh, Australia loves loves that expression. You know, so the project uh, called in some environmental psychologists to give us a battery of tests. They called in the head of the psychiatric department at the University of Arizona Medical School, and he had private, private sessions with all of us. And his conclusion at the end of all of that was, if I was lost in the Amazon and I needed eight people to take me out safely, you guys would be my first choice. Interesting. And, and the environmental tests were really interesting also in terms of gender. You know, it, it seems kind of tame that we decided four men and four women. I, I don't know if the, Brit, the British for many years, many decades, wouldn't send women to the Antarctica for fear of sexual jealousy and, I don't know, all of those misogynist kind of uh, thought forms. Mm -hmm. But on the, the psychological profiles of the environmental psychologists, it showed that we had an explorer profile, uh, surprise. But what's interesting is that the men and the women tested almost exactly the same. And when they were looking for an analog of similar results, it was NASA astronauts. Huh. Well, the explorer part makes sense. I mean, in all fairness, you guys did, did build a boat and sail the world. So there is that. Um, and that was before you got into all this. So... Um, we plant, we planted a fruit fruit orchard in New Mexico. <laughs> yeah. If you know New Mexico, you'd think, "Wow, that is optimism." Yeah, well, yeah. I'm assuming I've never been to New Mexico. I've sort of assumed there's plenty of tumbleweeds, dry, and lots of sand <laughs> or, uh, or dust. It has been it has been desertified by a concerted effort of the Spanish first, and now the Anglo uh, colonizers. How do you like living there? You guys went back. I mean, you've built your community there. You you live there. You, you know, frankly, rent out rooms for conventions at the Synergia Ranch. I wouldn't call it. Not conventions. Sounds like there's going to be wow. 10,000 people. Yeah, small workshops and conferences. Everything from conferences African, a way better drumming, word, yeah. African drumming and dancing to, you know, Zen and Buddhist meditation to shamanistic people and, you know. Uh, yeah, etc. 
No, I, I love New Mexico. I fell in love with it. You know, first off, it was something so completely different from growing up in, in New York and going to school in New England. You know, the, the, the Southwest, the West of the United States is like a completely different country. And I'll share something with you. I, what really endears me to the Northern New Mexico is that they have three cultures here. The Native Americans, uh, Pueblos, also Apache and, and uh, Navajo, they, uh, especially the Pueblos, were never taken off their land. And the, the Spanish history, you know, just 150 years ago, New Mexico is part of, uh, was part of Mexico. Hispanic culture is really, really strong in northern New Mexico. And it's always attracted fairly, you know, maverick, innovative Anglos. So Santa Fe, you know, for a little, a, really a little city, 65, 75,000 people, has amazing amounts of culture, spirituality, all kinds of creative endeavors going on. But the clincher for me was, I think I'd only been um, living in New Mexico for, you know, X number of months. I went to my first Pueblo Indian dance. And I was watching, you know, these people, you know, and some of these uh, dance dances have a thousand dancers in a plaza doing a dance that probably dates back thousands of years. You know, got one drummer and a chorus of old men doing the chanting. And I suddenly realized that these people had a completely different mindset and cosmology than I knew about. You know, I grew up in New York, which is kind of a melting pot at the, at the time I grew up for mainly mainly European people, a little bit of, of Asian. And this Pueblo culture kind of, you know, gave me an illustration. There are so many ways of being human. There are so many different, you know, mythologies that humans can live by. And I found it really, really liberating. And I think that was kind of the deal that that clinched my love for New Mexico in this part of the world. Well, that those different ways of being and the way that, you know, sort of all these belief systems happen with two years in biosphere, the battles that you went through, the weight loss, the, the carbon dioxide or lack of oxygen, then the oxygen experiencing the difference of between living your life with and without, you know, enough oxygen really. Um, and plus, I mean, you're surrounded by those people as much as most of them were family for a long term. That must change some of that belief system stuff for you, or did it just reinforce it? How are you different, um, you know, today looking at, you know, the way that you celebrate life with, you know, what I feel from you anyway, Mark, is that, you know, there's, there's a piece of heart here. There is a, there's a connection to the earth. You know, there's a connection to community that's so incredibly important. There's a curiosity that needs to be there. So... How did that impact that? Yeah, I mean, uh, and we should go on to the difficulties of living with just seven other people, which can't be, you know, uh, overstated. It was by way and, be and beyond the most difficult part of uh, the two years in bias for two. But, you know, when you talk about the human experience and how you get changed, you know, bias for two was kind of a watershed for me. Because it was kind of like, 
it made everything that I had been thinking about, about how the world needed to change and how people needed to be much more connected to nature. It took all that from the cerebral plane to the really deeply, deeply, deeply cellular plane, you know, to where it was inescapable. And, And the interesting thing, you know, all eight of us and, you know, and, you know, most of us have written about it, talked about it in interviews, et cetera. We all went through that kind of phase change from being, how should we say, you know, dining table, cocktail party environmentalists mm-hmm. to understanding at a really deep, maybe gut level. Maybe that's the word I should use, gut level. I like cellular. Gut level, gut level sounds gut. good too, though. What? <laughs> Cellular I, level. I like cellular yeah. level because it kind of is cellular level to me is is that way of being, right? It's just this natural way of being. Well, you know, I mean, I I, I use that word kind of groping. You know, we and and you and I have talked about our love of language. You know, language kind of fails us. I mean, you know, that's why I think we revere great poets because they make this incredible stab at at in whatever language they're writing. <laughs> to take these ineffable, these really, really profound and, you know, deeply interior. And I think, you know, if any of us get deeply interior, this is the great, uh, wonderful magic of being human. You know, the more interior any individual becomes, the more connected they are to our collective experience. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so we humans, you know, you know, can you imagine humanity without having invented language? And having this, you know, trove, you know, I go back, I'm, you know, mostly still a a Westerner, you know, you go back to Shakespeare and you really ponder where you watch a really great performance where actors and actresses really bring that to life. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah. So, so. Well, I I would just say as far as, sorry, Mark, I would say go as far as I don't, I'm not quite sure there is humanity without language. I mean, that's really where it lands for me. You, you know, our, our charismatic leader, not not a guru of a cult, uh, John Allen, <laughs> he's given some talks about, you know, there's a certain brainwashing that we get from a superficial adherence to science. So I think it's really cool. And if your listeners haven't, you know, tuned into the idea of five kingdoms of life, that's really an interesting concept, because now we divide the bacteria into the the really primitive ones or early ones, I shouldn't say primitive without a nucleus. It's on and on and on to fungi, plants and animals, you know, but John's given talks about, you know, that in a way, just saying that humans are animals is understating, you know, the power that we've discovered because of our use of symbols, you know, that we can, we can transmit ideas, cultural values, you know, through time and space. And it's quite, you know, so he, he likes to call uh, call humans uh, homo symbolicus, that we are the symbolic, you, you know, people. So, yeah, and, and it's interesting, Bias or Two, and, you know, the fun of Bias or Two, one of the, the lower pleasures is watching people misinterpret Bias or Two or put it through the grinder of their particular <laughs> prejudices and, and and just as a quick illustration that comes to mind, I remember when Biosphere 2, even before the two-year closure, when it was still a project in development, was attacked in a French communist uh, newspaper, Humanité, because the 
the you know from the communist standpoint, Biosphere Two is a proof that the U.S. was planning a unilateral first strike nuclear attack on the world. All oh, right, and and its leaders were going to survive in biospheres dug deeply into various mountains around the world. It's creative. I found found that so, so interesting. Well, isn't that funny? The perspective that everyone will take on that. I think that's really good. Although I would like to just recognize that you just taught me something is to look at language as symbols um, because language is uh, formed by letters and sounds. And if letters and sounds are just symbols, then what is language as a symbol? I'm going to look at... uh, I'm going to look at that and stick with that. I think that's good. Um, thank you for that. One of the pieces that um, that that I saw in the living with seven other people in that what seemingly uh, large bio, biodome from the outside was probably felt really small at times with only seven people there for two years is that the progression seemed to go from we to me and then back to we again as struggles started. Is that a fair synopsis of what happened? You know, uh, to simplify anything is, you know, inviting error. And I don't think it, it devolved to we because, and some of my colleagues have had heated discussions about this. Were there really two factions in bias or two? Well, maybe, maybe not because thing, you know, humans are complex. But, you know, so I don't think it ever changed, and it certainly didn't change to me, because, you know, part of that transformation of understanding that Biosphere 2 is keeping us alive, literally, literally, literally. Of course, we could have gone through an airlock door, but no one wanted to do that unless, you know, absolutely forced to do that. So there was always a we going on, and I, I, I don't know if I quoted last time, but Roy Walford you know, who, you know, maybe he was part of the faction that said, well, screw this, let's bring in food, you know, let's bring in oxygen earlier, you know, let, let's not uh, push the limits on so much. Uh, it, it, in one of his writings, he said, I may have detested some of the other crew at times, but we were a hell of a team. So I think the, you know, the really interesting thing, and I look at, you know, clearly at every level, humans, you know, are in conflict. You know, families are not without conflicts. You know, cities and communities are not without conflicts. But what's the unifying thing? If I can go back to that hokey, badly expressed French uh, woman, (laughs) what is the glue? Yeah. And I think that, you know, the real problem on planet Earth is, we, you know, the glue is out there if we could if we could grab it. If we could really grab that we have one small planet, we have one biosphere that currently is really under duress and act accordingly, then that gives scope for, you know, have all the conflict you want. <laughs> you know, people also thrive in conflict. I think, you know, by the way, it was never going to happen. But if we were just one happy family and nothing bad happened during Biosphere 2, nothing uh, unexpected, you know, you find out who you are when, you know, when the stuff hits the fan. Mm-hmm. I'll prevent uh, the bleeping out of my comments. <laughs> you know, and, and it's also the nature of life, the nature of the Biosphere. You know, the Biosphere is so dramatic, you know, 
it's kind of like people look at Biosphere 2 now and they say, of course they stayed in there for two years. You know, that was really unlikely. It's really unlikely that this little biosphere that however it began on Biosphere on, on our planet has persisted for 3.8 or 3.9 billion years. You know, life is drama. Uh, and yeah, so kudos to the theater of all possibilities. And I, I think that, you know, the fact that we all, all eight of us were versed in theater really helped us persist in inside because we could also see, well, here's act one, here's act two, here's act three, here's act four, here's the bloody fifth, you know, when the bodies usually litter the, the stage in classical drama. And here's the catharsis. Here is the end. Mm -hmm. The answer we've all been looking for. <laughs> well, a little piece of it. A little piece of it. A little piece of it, too. Well, uh, Mark, I can't thank you enough for all the time. There is one very, very important question that I have after watching the uh, Spaceship Earth documentary, and that is, have you ever been able to stomach beetroot since? Yeah, I, I have no problem with beetroot. It's one of our, our uh, important crops in the organic farm. You know, I think, I think that the way that film was a little bit unkind to us, and it wasn't just beets. Uh, you know, we ate on average one pound of sweet potatoes per person per day. Wow. But, you know, if you're creative and if you're eating on what you grow, you get creative. You know, it was probably the sweetest. Th well, papayas, bananas and sweet potatoes were the sweetest thing we had. So it would appear in many guises from homemade ice creams to porridges, and etc. I mean, you know, we've never, I've never lived as well as I did in Biosphere 2, and we've never eaten as well. I mean, I'm an organic farmer, but I don't sit down to meals where I know that everything on that plate has come from the efforts of us in the farm. Yeah. It's an incredibly wonderful feeling. And, you know, by the way, Shane, and I always love to, you know, emphasize this, we're, we're so short-term memory you know, especially in the West. It's true. You know, we don't understand, you know, I'd like to say organic farming is not an innovation and a new thing. Everyone on the planet was an organic farmer insofar as they farmed, you know, 300 years ago because they hadn't invented chemical fertilizers. And 300 years ago, almost all of us were farmers and growing our food. You know, this is kind of return to roots. I'm not saying that this is in the future, but you know, I agree. You were saying something earlier, and I totally, totally, this is, this is something I just dream and hope for, like probably anyone with any compassion for humans and the biosphere. I really hope that we come out of the pandemic and the lockdown and the quarantines, you know, with a new appreciation of life, what life on Earth could be, and we reimagine it, that we don't just go back to business as usual, which we know is causing human misery and, you know, pretty degrading and possibly destroying our, our biosphere. And the humans that are in it. And that's yep. amazing. Thank you, Mark, so much. Um, I'm taking with me life is drama. I'm taking with me um, this world. What if we just took the perspective of this is keeping me alive? Then what would we do on life to change what that is like? Um, thank you, sir, so much for spending time with on the radio. I know you and I will spend some time off the radio. I look forward to that too, but thanks for being here on the show tonight. 
It's been a pleasure, and your readers should definitely seek out a Kindle or printed version of Life Under Glass, the new second edition. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.